Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the city of brotherly disinterest. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can also listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. I'm back, baby. Yeah, nice of you to join us for once. (laughs) That's right. It's nice to have everyone back together. For the first time in a while. So so much love in the room, I can't stand it. Yeah, well, speaking of a lot of love in the room, I, I want to real quick at the top of this show, thank everyone who is involved with our 100th episode spectacular. Wait, I thought this was the 100th. This is did I Did I miss you? you did I miss and also... Oh, the gall. <laughs> I came all with you mean I just this is for no I thought this the was the man our, has brass balls oh, you cannot deny him that starting 101 off on one mm. doozy of a foot 101 yes 101 that's what it is uh, mm. and um I also want to thank all of the listeners who um uh tuned in who called in and who came down to the studio it was a ton of fun to meet a bunch of people who have been listening to the show for a while um, and get to hang out with them a bit, share some cake with them. Um, so that was good fun. But uh, anyway, enough celebration. Um, on today's show, we've got some good old-fashioned God things like you, uh, some counter-apologetics, some polyatheism, and props. To start us off, though, we've got um, a look at our friends over in Egypt. It's been a while since the Arab Spring, and we now can take a look at how things are actually developing in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's some bad news. Things are not going all that well. Starting with an article from NPR, Unease Grows Over Islamist Political Agenda in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks like um, the uh, Islamists are continuing to take control over parliament. They have a very good chance at winning the presidency. None of which is terribly surprising. No. When not, we even kind of predicted that on the show before. Yeah, not terribly surprising. I guess the 47% of parliament is now controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood. The Salafi movement, which is another Islamic fundamentalist movement, they're a group of Sunni fundamentalists who believe that there was a golden age of Islam in the very beginning, and they want to mm-hmm. imitate. Uh, they want to imitate this golden age, so they're, more, they're even more conservative. More conservative than, yeah. They're, yeah, they're they're really old school. Yeah, twenty five percent of parliament they control. So that's twenty five percent on top of the forty seven percent that's controlled by the Islamic Brotherhood. That's correct. So we're getting close to seventy. That adds up to percent of, about <laughs> yeah. um, three quarters. 
Yeah. Yeah. Almost and as many fundamentalists as our Congress. <laughs> yes. Or communists, depending on who you ask, mm-hmm. Congressman West. Yeah, the three presidential candidates. Well, one is uh, Mumbarak's previous foreign minister. So the odds of him actually getting elected. I can't imagine the Arab Spring is yeah. going to look too kindly. The secularist... Yes, the secularist candidate is almost unelectable. The other two are Islamists, and right now it looks like the uh, the front runner is going to be Mohammed Morsi, who is the Muslim Brotherhood's chosen candidate. Mm-hmm. The really scary part is that there is a panel now that is getting ready to draft Egypt's new constitution. Mm-hmm. They've been handpicked by the Islamists within parliament. Two-thirds of the panel members are Islamists. So this is not the Egyptian Madison and Jefferson? No. They're no. Probably just trying a... to get the language clear on the separation of church and state and how to say that. <laughs> yeah, state I'm and... sure that's priority number one. Only a handful of women and Christians were selected to take part, says the NPR article. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all sorts of proposals, even ones that haven't passed, but they're just making people nervous. Uh, there was, for example, there, it was recently proposed that certain punishments prescribed by Islamic law be resurrected, mm-hmm. such as cutting off of limbs. We're talking uh, actually Sharia law kind of ideas as opposed to the Sharia law um, panic in the United States, which yes. isn't real. It is real in Egypt. Yeah. Um, there have been proposals by... For example, in education, there have been proposals that all foreign language curriculum be stripped from Egyptian schools. Why? Because if Egyptians learn English, they might be seduced by the West. Yeah. Great Uh, way to keep up with other nations, too, is to cut (laughs) yourselves off from any communication with them. Yeah, neither of those proposals passed, but they just – they have people worried. So, for example, a representative of the Muslim Brotherhood, he's actually critical of these proposals too. Mm -hmm. But because it's going to weaken the Muslim Brotherhood's power, uh, because it might not lead to confidence in their rule, it's not as if he's in principle against a lot of these objections. Here's a quote from uh, Amir Darag. Mm -hmm. He's the head of the Giza branch of the Muslim Brotherhood's Freedom and Justice Party. He says, we don't want uh, to get into anything that might incur disputes regarding ideological issues or things like that. We're looking for things that unite the Egyptian people. But a lot of other Egyptian citizens... And that sounds good. Well, it sounds good. But a lot of other Egyptian citizens are saying, yeah, (laughs) and we know exactly why. Mm -hmm. They don't want to go too quick. Yes. They believe that if they move too quickly then they will lose public support. So they are trying to gradually phase these things in. Which also means that if they are going at a slower pace, there is time for that to change. There is time for other people to come in power. There is time for other people to have an effect and say, no, we're not going to do this. Now, that's you know a glass half empty or a glass half full, rather, approach right. To, right. Uh, to this tactic. But... But yes, yes, situation that may not be hopeless. Uh, in the National Geographic article uh, out this month, Egypt in the Moment, by Jeffrey Bartholet, um, there's a kind of chilling conversation that the 
that the writer has with a group of Islamists, and uh, and they they seem quite willing and and open uh, to share their strategy. I mean, they they make it absolutely clear that no, we we're just we're moving slowly because again, we wanna we wanna gain the favor of our countrymen. But when he starts asking specific questions, I mean, one of the parts that was really disturbing for me is he just asks point blank. You know, some Islamists have said that once they're in power, maybe something they should do is start destroying the statues of the pharaohs and various mm-hmm. different monuments. And what do you guys think about all, that? All the iconography yeah. of the ancient uh, Egyptian religion. As the Taliban did in Pakistan with exactly. those Buddhist statues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once they're gone, we can't get them back. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, this this group of this room of Islamists suddenly went quiet. <laughs> And didn't want to answer and said, well, we would defer to a higher uh, authority on that particular a higher one. religious authority. Yeah, higher religious yeah. authority, you know, meaning they didn't want to answer. And then he pressed the issue mm. and said, well, you know, uh, one of the previous revolutions that happened, um, they made very careful that, that so, such a thing – so monuments would be protected. Yeah, maybe we could get the British Museum to pilfer all the all the cultural artifacts ahead of time. Yeah, we see we need Napoleon back because he was really good at stealing stuff from Egypt. So we could just get it safely. At Every a distance. museum in the world will then have their own little piece of you know, we got the pyramids of Giza yeah. in the backyard. Like <laughs> Vegas could get the actual pyramids <laughs> and say we <laughs> ship them piece by piece before the they yeah. could tear them down in Egypt. And, and and, uh, you know, uh, one of the things we were talking about this before the show that uh, you pointed out, Jeremy, is that this would be a big problem for Egypt as far as tourism goes. That's well, a yeah. that's a large portion of their their, um, their economy depends yeah. on tourism. And one of the reasons why things are so bad in the aftermath of this is that, uh, well, I mean, not only in the absence of a strong secular authority, mm-hmm. not only is crime on the rise, uh, but Related to that, tourists aren't coming. So yeah. uh, the the article in the National Geographic mentions this one particular site in uh, in Giza that used to get three thousand people in there a day, mm. foreign tourists, and now is only getting one hundred and fifty. So their economy is very much depressed right now. Um, I, I, I believe I read, and I don't know if it was in one of the articles um, you had shared or if it was somewhere else that there was actually more tourism during. The Arab Spring, more people coming in, especially to Tahrir Square, people that wanted to to see the revolution going on than what there is right now afterwards. Oh, really? I, I, I believe I read that. Now, I could be mistaken. But, uh, yeah, so it's it's gotten bad. It's gotten bad for women, too. There's an excellent article in Foreign Policy magazine yeah. by Mona Eltway. I don't know if that's how you actually pronounce her name, um, but she was um, she herself was attacked during the uh, during the protests. Mm-hmm. She was uh, sexually assaulted uh, by and protesters. By police. Yeah, by, and... yeah, and it was yeah, it was a, a terrible incident. But she writes a very very powerfully worded mm-hmm. um, editorial in Foreign Policy magazine called "Why Do They Hate Us." in which she's illustrating that she's arguing that the revolution hasn't even begun yet. Mm. She says, until rage shifts from the oppressors in our presidential palaces to the oppressors on our streets and in our homes, the revolution hasn't even begun. 
there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff to comment on in this article. I would highly recommend our readers take a look at it. Unfortunately, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about what mm-hmm. she brings up in Egypt and some of the uh, some of the reactionary policies now in the wake of the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but she mentions in Egypt several disturbing things. Of course, during during the protests, um, the military police arrested a lot of people and women were subjected to virginity tests, mm-hmm. um, doctors going in and um, trying to see if they actually had hymens. Now, why that is at all important to controlling protesters yeah. is, uh, you know, this I can't even think of a remote reason. You know, people complain about not getting that. free health care. I think this is the solution yeah. <laughs> uh, to free women's health care. Well, and, and to put it in perspective, too, in, in, here in the United States, we've talked a lot about um, the forced um, ultrasounds uh, in, that have been proposed and I believe passed in a few states here uh, for women seeking abortions. And that is a violation of women. It's um, tantamount to rape, I would say. But compared to what's going on in Egypt, um, it's a whole other level. It's still wrong what's going on here in the United States, but it really um, shows us that it could be worse. Yeah. Luckily, Santorum dropped out of the race. So. <laughs> Uh, well, the uh, so the doctor was sued, but the courts now mm-hmm. are getting really conservative, yeah. uh, and he was acquitted. She also mentions the Salafis made sure that the female candidates for parliament that they ran a flower in place of the women's faces, mm, uh, yeah, because of yeah. course you, we're not supposed to look at women's faces. No let alone anything else. The Muslim Brotherhood does not believe that women or Christians even uh, can be president. Uh, and the Muslim Brotherhood's Women's Committee, uh, recently the representative from that uh, said that women should not march and protest because it's more dignified to let their husbands and their brothers demonstrate for them. Are there any women in this group? It's the Muslim Brotherhood's Women's Council? Yes. Are there, there any is, actual there, women? Yes, the head oh, of it okay. is a woman, but okay. uh, I mean... <laughs> she defers to her husband. Does, yeah, it doesn't yeah. mean that they're somehow <laughs> feminist or, no, no. you know, pro-women's rights. Like Republican female candidates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like uh, Calista Gingrich, who gave up her opinion for Lent. <laughs> no, no, no. She said that. She actually wow. said that. That's awesome. Well, that's a, there's a thermodynamics in the universe of opinions, and so to the extent that she doesn't have one, that was transferred over to her partner. Yeah, okay. She has more. Than one. It's not just in, in Egypt, of course, in Tunisia. There's there's been claims that they're going to keep the principle of equality between men and women, but mm-hmm. uh, university professors are saying uh, no. <laughs> Pressure is on the rise. Yeah. Uh, um, we're seeing attacks. We're seeing assaults and intimidation. Um, uh, women who are not wearing hijabs, and a lot of women's rights activists are concerned there. In Libya, restrictions on polygamy have been removed. So you can go across a lot of these countries now in the wake of the Arab Spring and see that uh, policies towards women are getting more and more regressive. Which is not what we were hoping for. No, it's not. And uh, another thing in Egypt, real quick, I think that deserves mention. They recently arrested Adel Imam, 
who is a uh, movie star. He's an Egyptian movie star. A, a, a comic actor, right? Yeah, yeah, he's a comedian, and they arrested him, put him in jail for three months, mm-hmm. uh, fined him $170 for Which is not much of a fine, to be fair. No. But, yeah. I mean, for an average citizen in Egypt, that would be crippling. Yeah, that's true. But a celebrity, a that's not star, a huge... Maybe not. But nevertheless, he's being sentenced to three months in an Egyptian prison mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for... That's the punishment. For just, for just lightly making fun of certain aspects of Islam. Yes. Uh, one of his films... <clears throat> had a parodied Muslim men having long beards and uh, wearing traditional yeah. Islamic and, clothing. And he starred in movies. Uh, one of them is called The Terrorist, I think. Yeah. And, the, you, you know, these are not um, necessarily hard-hitting um, satires, but there is, there's a level of satire to it, and it's obviously too much for the new Egyptian government because they're – Throwing him and and other uh, comedians and actors are being arrested as well. I don't think fundamentalists are noted for having a deep sense of humor. Th- this no. is true. Fundamentalism breeds no irony. If he if he's the one who who gets arrested, I wonder what happened to the people who actually wrote the script. I, yeah, in, I was uh, going to say I don't know. Well, if- luckily, one of the people who wrote the the book that was adopt was adapted into one of these movies mm-hmm. uh, is not an Egyptian. But oh, um, lucky him was uh, active on the tweets saying that it'll make any writer, or director, or actor think before considering the role of a Muslim yeah. figure. Absolutely, which is a shame. Yeah, and uh, and said that this is uh, that this that this court case is basically pushing uh, Egypt back into the Middle Ages. Yeah, which, which frankly it hadn't come all that far from in the first place in a lot of regards. Yeah, I was going to do a satire of well, religious violence and send my script there. It was going to be called Hop on Copped. Oh, my nice. God. Gosh. But now I'm not going to do that anymore because I don't think they get the joke. This 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 doesn't go as far as Coptical Illusion, though, I have to say. <laughs> Coptical Illusion was a better pun. <laughs> so we, can't take our, we can't take our Coptic comedy tour on Egypt now. They're going to they're send us to jail and subject us to a virginity test, which... A few of us might, you know, might pass, but the other ones would not. <laughs> My child would be a dead giveaway. Now, now there is there is one one of these regressive laws that's been getting a lot of news. Yeah, this one's highly regressive um, and kind of disturbing, right? Yeah, uh, this is the supposed law that's been proposed to allow farewell sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, where a Muslim mm-hmm. man could sleep with his dead wife's corpse up to six hours after she had died. Clock's ticking, boys. <laughs> wow. <laughs> God. But, but Luckily. We've dug, we've dug up and investigated this, though. But, well, this story was originally reported, or one of the original sources was none other than the U.K.'s Daily Mail. Yeah. Now that Breitbart is gone, uh, the Daily Mail has got to be kind of the the number one source of dubious news items. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out that this one is not true. Nobody's exactly sure where it came from in the first place, but it's looking like it wasn't true. It it might have started as nothing more than a rumor to try to discredit uh, the the current uh, parliament. So, uh, but there's absolutely no evidence that this people was been ever trying proposed. to verify this and back yeah. it up, and it's been it's been pretty elusive finding any evidence for this. Yeah. So we've we've uh, totally cold cocked that rumor. 
Sorry, sorry. That was the best one. That was good. That was excellent. That was, that was excellent. I think Dark's been, been replaced as the sharpshooter, though. That was uh, bazinga. That was good. Anyways, there I'll, is. I'll see the high ground in the necrophilia jokes. <laughs> That'll be Justin's thing. You came for that. Here's Justin. That's his thing. If we need a ray of hope in all this bad news about Egypt, um, mm. I, I do have one to suggest. Perhaps it could a, it be a raw of hope? Wah, wah. Uh, Egyptian sun god joke. I don't know if you clarify. <laughs> just in case best. anybody didn't get it. Egyptian sun god joke. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> well, our, no, it's an Aten, man. It's an Aten of hope. That's a little Akhenaten. Yeah, yeah. For Amenhotep yeah, fans thanks, out there. Thanks. Just shout out to all the Amenhotep fans. See, it's funny because it uses the same word, you know. This is why most of us aren't <laughs> in the same room, usually. All right. You guys finished? Yeah, I'm yeah. totally done. Out of my system now. Continue. All right. There was a ray of hope at the end of this article. The National Geographic article talked about the new library of Alexandria. Hmm. And uh, it sounds like a really cool place. When you walk into the the library, the first thing you're going to be greeted with is a large statue, a towering statue, they say, of Hypatia, Hmm. a naked statue of Hypatia on top of things. Hypatia, of course, the famed librarian of the first library of Alexandria, Mm -hmm. who herself was killed uh, by a Christian mob. No, the inscription does not say. That's what librarians say, man. <laughs> Hypatia saith. The inscription says that uh, Hypatia was considered by some one of the defenders of paganism in the mm-hmm. classical era, mm-hmm. but she was actually a victim of fanatic ideologists. Mm. Let me go on to read the description in this article of the library. It says, in a way, the Alexandrian library is more revolutionary than anything that has happened in Tahrir. The facilities include a library for the blind, two children's libraries, a map library, conference halls, academic research centers, an archaeological museum, art exhibits, a planetarium, internet link computers and Wi-Fi access, 1.24 million books and a capacity for 6 million more. It hosts theater productions and concerts. It has a supercomputer that can make trillions of calculations per second. It has digital archives of Egyptian history and 43 racks of computers that aim to collect every accessible page that has ever appeared on the Internet. Its collections contain books that have been banned elsewhere in the Middle East. Indeed, it is an oasis of free thought in a region where people are more often than not told what to think and then told to memorize it and not entertain any other ideas. And then they have the library's directors uh, talk about how uh, one of the brilliant moves they made was to make a deal with the Egyptian government that they were in charge, the library was in charge of its own security. Excellent. So that the government couldn't get in and Mm -hmm. regulate things on the inside. And he said, um, as a result, quote, you can think and talk about anything inside the library of Alexandria. 
So awesome. awesome. The secularists have a vision of what that what that nation could look like too, yeah. Yeah. and it's out there where people can experience it for themselves. So mm-hmm. hopefully, it's that vision that will win over in the end. And and really, the biggest improvement of this library over the old library of Alexandria is that this one is not under the sea. Yeah, or on so, fire, or on fire, or. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of a perk when it comes to life. No, that's that's truly an amazing thing <laughs> yeah, to get in any Muslim. That, awesome, actually, yeah. to get anywhere. So you're right. There is a, a bit of a we don't have lining. to give up just yet yeah. on Egypt. Shall we turn now to some God thinks like you? So what you got for us today, Luke? Well, uh, you might recall in episode number, I forget, the uh, we talked last time about some of the research that's been, it's like a golden age on research on intuitive versus analytical thinking and its relationship to religious belief. To just refresh your memory, we discussed some studies where they gave people uh, problems that measured the analyticalness of their thought process versus the intuitiveness. So like intuitive thinking is shooting from the hip. Mm-hmm. You know, going with your first gut thing, even uh, sometimes that's incorrect versus versus analytical thinking, which is breaking down a problem systematically. Solving then, a problem like Maria. What can you do about Maria? Yeah. yeah. So, for example, here's a little <laughs> quiz to get your guys' brain uh, energized this morning. I'm going to give you a thought problem here, and you give me the answer as soon as it comes to you. This isn't fair. We already know we're going to be tricked. If it takes five that's machines, true. five minutes to make five widgets... How long would it take a hundred machines to make a hundred widgets? How many minutes? What, why do I need widgets? So you're thinking too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> you've already scored. Well, it it would take five minutes. Why? Because they're each capable of making a widget every five minutes. And that is why you, sir, are an atheist. <laughs> oh, is that why it is? Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> so here's another one. Uh, if you, there, there's a lake and there's a patch of lily pads and every day the patch doubles mm-hmm. in size. Now, if it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, mm-hmm. how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? How many days? It would 47. take 47 days because it doubles in size every day. So on the 47th day, it was half of the pond. On the 48th day, it covered the no, no, entire God pond. God created it. And then on the 7th day. <laughs> you guys are <laughs> blowing the lid off the atheist. I'm no. sorry. Should we should we have played dumb it's and not said even, it's not even hard for you? 24 here. days. This is why the – okay. So these are like analytical thinking tasks. Which Often those things have an intuitive answer that seems like – uh, that comes to you quick, but then uh, the what research shows is that people that have more analytical thought style resist giving the the gut answer like you know a hundred widgets, a hundred minutes, right? You know, or like in the example last time we talked about the ball and the bat costing a, a buck ten, and the balls the, the bats a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Many people then say you know ten cents or whatever without. Stopping and breaking the problem down. Well, study we talked about last time showed that that the more religious somebody was, the more they tended to give the quick, intuitive answer as opposed to the analytical, correct answer. Hmm. That that thought style of breaking down a problem analytically was somehow related to skepticism or hmm. lack of belief. And they even they had another study where they primed, had people write about thinking analytically to activate the the, the concept to prime that, and that also led to lower belief in people. 
they've actually, uh, you know, and that was just one study, which is interesting, but there's actually two more studies this month that came out that <clears throat> confirmed those basic findings and extended them. One of the studies was by, uh, the lead author was called uh, Penny Cook uh, in the journal Cognition, and what they found was is that they gave a whole variety of other types of tests of analytical thinking and not only measured belief versus disbelief, but what kind of belief. That is, you can mm. have at one extreme a personal God, like a traditional you know, Christian belief, or maybe like a, uh, a deist God who's uh, you know, doesn't really actively control people's lives. Somewhere in the middle, there's like an agnosticism, or at the other extreme, you know, stone cold atheism. Mm. They they found that it was that the analyticalness showed a linear increase and decrease along that continuum. In other words, the most intuitive thinkers were the personal god, the um. second most mm, deistic type of god in the middle, you know, agnostic, and then the the most analytical thinkers were atheists. Which is not to equate analytical thinking with intelligence, necessarily. No, they controlled for that. Yeah. They actually Hmm. controlled in the statistical analysis, they entered the, they gave a person like a vocabulary test, which is a quick and dirty measure of just overall cognitive ability. So all these stats were controlling for overall intelligence. So Mm -hmm. it's not just raw IQ, it was the way the person thinks. Right. Uh, and so they and they have uh, also tests of like there's a here's another um, uh, problem that's often given to measure somebody's knowledge of uh, of general base rates. Uh, Jake's 34 years old and he lives in a beautiful home in a posh suburb and he's well spoken and very interested in politics and he invests a lot of time in his career. Now Jake's in a pool of people of a thousand people that were in a study and 995 of those people were nurses and five were doctors. Jake happened to be randomly selected from that population to be in the study. Mm-hmm. Is he a nurse or a doctor? I don't know, but he's white. You just scored mm-hmm. high in the racism measure. Yeah, see? <laughs> so most people would say uh, that trips up a lot of people because it measures the person's statistical probability thinking, their, their knowledge of base rates. If he's randomly selected and there's only five doctors in a sample of a thousand, mm-hmm. Then chances any randomly are he's a nurse. chances are he's a nurse, but people get swayed by the personal description, like oh, he seems highly intelligent and well spoken, and blah blah blah. So <laughs> Nurses that... aren't highly intelligent. Well, yeah, I, I think I think <laughs> actually probably the deciding factor is just gender bias. Right. That that um, you know we've been raised to think, and this is changing somewhat, but. Doctor is male, nurse is female. Yeah, they have a, and, and its name. You know, if if the name was Maria, I think people would go would guess nurse more often, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's others like there's classical studies that use that sort of thing. That one of the famous ones you read about in in books is like the Linda the bank teller, and the, and there's like a you know yeah. is she a feminist bank teller or a yes. bank teller? Yeah, you know? we've talked about that before. Yeah. yeah, and so those measures require again this this concept is that they require the person to to stop short of giving what seems like the obvious answer quickly to stop and think right. about the problem and then analyze it and you know to do analytical thinking so and this if they case, have sexist intuitions that overrides that or, yeah. or or any type of intuition like you know that stereotype knowledge would override the the base rate of it's a vanishingly small chance that he's a doctor if he's randomly selected but again right. those type of problems found, were correlated with with religious belief 
in the intuitive direction and non-religious belief in the analytical direction. And here's the kicker, though. They, there was a uh, there was another study that uh, also came out. This third study uh, by Gervais and Norenzian. I have talked about their work before. They're like on Ricky a, Gervais you know, and Warren Zevon. Yes. Is that what I heard? <laughs> Gervais, they're out of because that would be an excellent study, <clears throat> all about things to do in Denver when you're dead. Full of high-pitched cackles that are annoying. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, Ricky's a fine man. Uh, no, they're out of British. This team is out of British Columbia, uh, uh, University of British Columbia, and they have all kinds of research. Last a couple episodes ago, I talked about like some of the research on atheist distrust. That was a Gervais. Right. Well, anyway, this study uh, also looked at analytical thought and religiosity, and they gave some of the problems that we just talked about. But they also did a priming study, which had some very clever things to, to again, to activate the concept of thinking analytically. They used stimuli where they would flash people like uh, pictures on the screen, like some people in the analytical conditions got a picture of the Greek, the Rodin statue of the mm-hmm. thinker there. Thinker, yeah. Versus like a, uh, another... Greek type statue like the disc thrower, the discus thrower, mm-hmm. you know, and so those are controlled for, you know, they're both similar types of human depictions and statues, but again, the thinker promotes this, you know, thinking right. concept, uh, and that again decreased religious belief uh, over the course. Like when they measured religious belief beforehand, showed people various stimuli that primed either analyticalness or non-analytical thinking, and the people uh, that had the analytical priming afterwards had had lower religious belief. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just, and it was also <coughs> belief in a variety of supernaturalness, too. It wasn't just religiosity. It also correlated with things like thinking about, uh, you know, ghosts and supernatural mm-hmm. type thinking, ESP and that sort wow. of thing, and woo-woo Interesting. stuff. So it wasn't. This study also extended it in that it was um, in the, in that uh, any type of supernatural agent seems to be correlated more with intuitive type thought and non supernatural or skeptical, you know, denial of supernaturalness. Is Which analytical weirdly enough is kind of intuitive, actually. <laughs> right. Well, it does. Yeah, it does fit in with with a lot of the stuff that people say about you know about the differences in types of of, of thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's there's some people who want to go the IQ route and say that religious people are somehow dim bulbs, but you know that's right. That's not. I don't think that's as Just, solid of a relationship as it's the way that people think, right. not necessarily their overall IQ wattage. Um, there was an apologetics blog, Stand to Reason, that had some comments on these studies uh, or the original study. They didn't really have criticisms for the study too much. They did point out that it wasn't actually looking at how people thought about religious concepts. It was just priming. How they thought in general. Yeah. Yeah. But then kind of made it into a commentary about the sad state of of Christianity today that, that, um, that religious people do tend to think intuitively. But when they learn to think analytically, they will – that should strengthen their religion. Oh, yeah, because if you look at the Bible analytically, wow. Yeah, and he uh, brought up an argument, uh, well, you know, Aristotle was as analytical of a thinker as they come, Mm -hmm. and he believed in a first cause argument. So, I mean, obviously thinking analytically is going to lead you to God. Failing to mention, of course, that Aristotle also believed that the brain was Mostly there to regulate your core temperature, right? Uh, or that you know, or that objects of uh, different masses would fall at different speeds. 
uh, or all sorts of things that we would not want to say Aristotle was an analytical thinker, therefore he was correct on. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but I mean, I guess I'll give to the to the apologist who wrote that blog that was it Greg Kogel? These, I think it was, yeah. That these studies don't show that faith is irrational; mm-hmm. they just right. show that many people believe for intuitive reasons. And uh, but but I would add to his to his comments on it. You know, what does that say about people who arrived at their belief for intuitive reasons and are now? possibly rationalizing those intuitive reasons. Mm. I mean, um, are, are the apologists really thinking analytically in the sense of they might be thinking of analytically of how to rescue their propositions? I don't find most apologists coming to this material undecided, seeing where reason is going to take them. They Most of them come with a prior commitment right. to defending the faith, something that they believed initially for non-rational reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, yeah, so that's the, brings up the old Shermer quote of we were, law, we're intuitive lawyers that for, and we defend things that we came about for non-smart reasons, we defend them in smart ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and right. so uh, if somebody <clears throat> arrives at a belief and assumes that there is a power in the sky that's watching you and listening to your prayers, that's a very intuitive type thought. It makes sense to people. Then afterwards, you set about trying to cobble together a case as to why, you know, the Bible and blah, 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 mm-hmm. it's with all this stuff, and that requires analytical firepower. Power right. to do that, you know, it takes a very, you know, Thomas Aquinas is is more analytical than I would ever be, but uh, right. clearly he set about with his proofs after he already determined yeah. that God he started existed. off with his conclusion and worked backwards. Yeah, so uh, I think that where this is actually heading, just as big picture wise, is that people, this is going to be, we're going to talk in some future episodes about some of the the new uh, arguments about. Uh, well, I guess it's not new to think of evolutionary psychology, but some of the new hypotheses that that try to make a case of whether religion itself is natural mm-hmm. or not. That is, the uh, religious thinking coming natural to people is because our brain is wired for that. There's going to be a whole wave of books and articles and debates in the, in the next year or so, uh, including like E.O. Wilson's uh, long-anticipated book um, where he talks about religious belief being selected on a group level mm, for yeah. things like promoting group cohesion. And and a lot of people are going to combine this cognitive uh, stuff with the evolutionary psychology stuff to, to debate how nat, you know, whether the religious beliefs really come naturally to people because that's the way your brain is wired, which again, to the atheist and the, and the skeptic community, they want to know where they fit into all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Do they somehow, mm-hmm. bu- are they, you know, Wired differently, how to why, how to explain that some people buck that trend? So, uh, dear listeners, we were go, we're going to cover that in some future episodes. So stay yeah, tuned. Coming up uh, fairly soon, I believe. Uh, let's move into some counter apologetics, then, shall we? Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for Counter Apologetics. Well, for today's Counter Apologetics, we are going to be considering an article by Joel Furches called Is God a Liar? It's actually a response. It never mentions us by name, but Justin was personally emailed by the uh, the writer of the article. So we know that it was uh, yeah, he, intended. He, he posted on uh, the Reasonable Doubts Facebook uh, wall mm. and so mm-hmm. said, hey, here's a little 
response to this? Intended as a response to our our second episode on presuppositionalism and trying to counter the claim that Christianity provided the intellectual basis for morality. We, of course, challenged that by pointing out several immoral deeds that God had committed, um, trying to say that God's holiness is unintelligible. There's a very long argument there, but one particular example that we brought up were passages in the Bible where God engages in deception. Mm -hmm. Any being who is capable of engaging in deception cannot be trusted with absolute certainty. Mm -hmm. God is a being who engages in deception, therefore God can't be trusted with absolute certainty. Mm -hmm. Joel Furches' response to this is in his article, Is God a Liar? From the Jarrettsville Christianity Examiner, which yes. is a major publication, I'm sure. He goes over some of the passages that we cited and also adds a few more. Some of the passages we referenced were Second Chronicles 18.22, So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of, mouths of these prophets of yours. Or Second Thessalonians 2 uh, through 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. We also mentioned the story of Moses hardening Pharaoh's heart, all as examples of God deceiving. Furches disagrees with our interpretation of this passage and claims that we are uh, taking them out of context. And when they're seen in their proper context, we come to the conclusion that God is not a liar at all. Quoting Joel, he says, Each of these passages is a perfect illustration of the danger which directly relates to atheism. That is this, if God presents you with a truth and you choose to disbelieve that truth, God will eventually bow to your disbelief with the consequence that truth itself is removed from you. In the absence of truth, all that remains is a lie. This is a, the principle of God giving people over to their sins throughout the Bible. So we get the idea that God is not actively deceiving people. He's just letting he's them... He's letting people deceive themselves. Yeah, he's exactly. letting them go on with their own deception. That he's, sounds so much less bad than God <laughs> deceiving people directly. And he uses uh, his passage to... Uh, he brings up the passage in Romans, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 25. I'm just going to, it's a long passage, so I'm just going to read certain relevant selections Out of context, it. please, just in the spirit of... Well, you can totally go look up the context. Atheism. Yes. You can look up the context <laughs> yourself and see that nothing's being misused here. Mm -hmm. uh, verse 21 says, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give, the, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Therefore, and down, down in verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to, impure, to impurity, to degrading of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'm and sorry, so sometimes the Bible just gets sexy. <laughs> <laughs> and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a deep, to a debased mind, and to things that should not be done. Sounds so not like only it. just not only knowledge, yes, 
but of course he's going to give us up to you know how we would sin and, and god is they see that as god respecting our free will in a sense right, right. so so right. again the key phrase is god gave them over this is just a, a passive thing now i, okay. I want to briefly this might not apply to Furches's argument but I briefly want to point out that in 98, we were mostly uh, critiquing Calvinists. Hmm. Uh, and right. this, I'm not sure a Calvinist uh, could use this Romans defense for a couple of reasons. First of all, it just it doesn't make sense with their doctrines of total depravity or uh, what's the what's the eye in, of the tulip? Irresistible, uh, irresistible grace. grace. Yeah, it doesn't make sense with irresistible grace either. Because <laughs> like we should do a high five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> tulip high five. Um, I don't get it. What's tulip? <laughs> we we actually do need to talk about we should, tulip yeah. sometime. We've gotten emails about Calvinism. It'll be an so interesting. One. They'll, they'll be coming up soon too. The sense in this passage is that God is constantly trying to uh, – showing people the truth. They have no excuse. They mm-hmm. they know God mm-hmm. is real and everything else, and uh, uh, they could accept this truth. And eventually God just gets tired of reminding them. If they reject it enough, God's going to just, just quit reminding them and say, hey, look, okay, fine. You want to wallow in ignorance – I'm going to let you right. do that. Which, and he allows them to resist him. To yeah, right, time. right. Well, which, which goes against the Calvinist concept of irresistible grace, which is right. that if God chooses yeah. you, there's no right. getting away. When God He's calls the sovereign. elect, you're not going yeah. to resist. So I, this would not be a Calvinist yeah. argument. And it's against the total depravity, too, because yeah. um, because this has this notion that people could hear the truth and could listen without yeah. God intervening. Right. And total right. depravity says, no, you, you cannot even yeah. believe in what God says until he forces you to believe in yes. it. Yes. Right. So I don't think that defense works there. Now, uh, Furches's theology might be different, and so mm-hmm. we should see if his response might work generally for non-Calvinists. Right. Uh, what Furches tries to show is that if we look at the context of all these other passages in Second uh, Thessalonians, for example, or uh, he cites some that we didn't cite in First Kings and in First Samuel uh, and Ezekiel, he, he points out in all these passages where God is sending spirits of deception and everything else or putting lying spirits into the mouths of the prophets, these are all in cases like in Romans 1 where people initially resisted God and didn't want to hear the truth, and then and then okay. they are deceived. Um, so he says this is just the same principle. This is just God giving them over. Right. Quoting Furches again, uh, this just highlights the amazing consistency of the Bible. These critics pull these passages from three separate texts and entirely different authors that were separated by hundreds of years of history, and each one illustrates the exact same principle. But no, it doesn't. Uh, again, like most of the, most of these uh, arguments that we see on the, the unity of the Bible, that unity was imposed there by the person who was interpreting the passage. Right. Mm-hmm. Furches is reading all these passages in the light of Romans 1, and he's missing their relevant context that show actually the Romans passage here is the exception. So he's not allowing the authors of the particular text to, to actually say what they want to say. Right. He's imposing a new meaning, writing his own text. Yeah. In all of these other passages, God is not described as sitting back and letting things take their course. God's agency is actually evoked in the act of deception. One of the passages 
Furches brought up was 1 Kings 22, verses 20 through 22, where God puts a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. Now, the, the background to this, Ahab wants to attack this kind of neighboring tribe or country. Because they have the white whale. King Ahab wants to attack this uh, neighboring tribe and wants the prophets to say that they're going to have victory, the, the real prophets of God to say that they're going to have victory mm-hmm. and uh, and the, the prophet won't do it because God hasn't declared victory. So God steps in to make other prophets of the king lie about this. And uh, it's clear that God is not just letting Ahab believe what he already wants to believe, that he's actively engaged in the deception. Right. Let me read the passage. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. Well, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. He said, you will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So here we have a demonic mm. agent here yeah. who's going to go spread lies, and he's actually standing, he's volunteering for a job that God wants him to do. <laughs> right. It's like Job, it's like a where, demonic where the day devil laborer. can just wander up in front of <laughs> right. God and go, you know, I can do some dirty work, and God's yeah. like, okay, that sounds great. God's yes. got a pretty good it's, relationship with these demonic these spirits. Spir- demonic spirits can just wander into the presence of the of God. I wonder if God and, thought and that that was going to make it into the Bible. He's like, dang, now they know <laughs> about my... <laughs> Strange relationship. <laughs> they volunteer to be his SEAL Team Six and, and messing with people's heads. So, I mean, I guess they could say, well, hey, look, it was the spirit that did the lying. Right, right. But it, it's clear that, again, like I said, the spirit is a day laborer for God in this case. He's, and God approves uh, of the act. Yeah, God is, God is asking for this act to happen and is allowing him to go do it. Uh, and even even guarantees that it will be successful right, right. in the passage. Um, you see this in First Samuel eighteen ten. Uh, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully forcibly on Saul. I mean, again, what's the point of adding an forcibly? Evil spirit came from God. What does that I mean? mean? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Forcefully upon Saul. I mean, again, the idea is if he he's already raped him. if he's already deceived, and there's no chance of him repenting here yeah. uh, or or coming to a different conclusion. Right, then what's the point? Why force it? Explain that that Saul's like his moodiness that's always described, like sometimes like a depression or whatever, his melancholiness is a result of his evil spirit from God, or like do they? Why was Saul such an asshole to David and? That's, and do they say it's because he's under possession yes. of an evil spirit? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the passage that I'm reading. This yeah. is right when Paul, when David's playing his harp and Saul like picks, up, them, yeah. picks up his spear. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's God that's behind that. He's he's engineering this as a way to, to kick Saul yeah, off to the get throne. David Why doesn't he just ask Saul to leave the throne? Or kill him. <laughs> yeah, stop his heart. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel Harden it with he likes cholesterol. To main, he likes to maintain a healthy biblical distance from the, <laughs> That's right. from the crime. <laughs> I want to make it look natural. <laughs> Ezekiel 14.9 pulls no punches here. It says, And if a prophet is enticed to utter a prophecy, I, the Lord, have enticed that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people of Israel. Now, the one of the key passages we used was Second Thessalonians, this idea of Christians, 
Christian believers actually being deceived. They are sent a, right. a spirit of deception. This is God. New Testament here. Yeah. This is yeah. this is not yeah. Old Testament God. This is the, yeah. the new guy. So that they can't repent. It's making it impossible for them to repent. Now, this one actually has, this passage has within it both the passive sense that we saw earlier in Romans, mm-hmm. but also the active sense of God uh, God's agency being in this deception. Okay. So uh, let me read uh, the passage. Now, the, the context here is, Pseudo-Paul, I believe it's Pseudo-Paul, I guess I'd have to check, but Second Thessalonians I don't think is considered a legitimate Pauline apostle. That one barely made epistle. it into the New Testament. Yeah. Um, Pseudo-Paul is warning uh, this congregation, the congregation of the Thessalonians, that some amongst them are saying that the Antichrist is here and that the end of days is, has come. And Pseudo-Paul says... Um, it will not come unless apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship, blah, 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 blah. Second Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Uh, For the mystery of lawless, lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Here's the passive sense. This antichrist person is being restrained. Mm-hmm. And this, this time of apostasy that's going to come is being held back by God. And so you could see then, okay, God is passively then letting the deceiver, um, the deceiver out. But here's the end of the passage. The one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence Hmm. so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness." So here's the active sense, again, mm-hmm. like we saw in all these other passages, of God is actively sending Deliberate spirit. deception. And, yeah. and the motive is, is given right there. Again, the idea is if they already don't believe the truth and there's no chance of them repenting anyways, right. why does he have to go this extra mile and right. send this, this spirit in to delude right. them? This is It this, says, so they will not believe. Right. <laughs> so as they in, will believe in what is false. As in there's a possible world where they possibly would right at the end. Right. And God wants to ensure that because most of, most of their life they didn't, that they don't deserve to be saved right at the end of their life. In order that they all may be judged. Right. This making is, sure that there's no way they escape the wrath to right. come. Mm-hmm. If I have cranky skepticism and atheism, how do I know whether that's actually God working through me to make me do that? That's one of the difficulties of life. Like I, would never, I could just be a puppet on uh, apostate puppet on God's strings. <laughs> well, I think don't you have a bumper sticker, Dave, that says, uh, "How how dare you question your God and making me not believe in Him?" Or Probably I have a lot that's of bumper awesome. stickers. Yeah, you do. Yeah, something to that effect. <laughs> yes. Once you can change your thoughts and make you think stuff, you have no way to know whether it's you thinking yeah, exactly. that or God thinking God that. is the puppet master. So. He, he's, um, he's Where does moral responsibility going. go here? Pull yeah. the string! Pull the string! Ed Wood fans. Okay. <laughs>
So God is active in this deception. Uh, if if uh, if there's any doubt remaining, we could have just cut the crap and resolved this one earlier because there are some pretty unambiguous passages where God is directly lying to people. Hmm. Uh, one example is, well, Jesus, if they consider Jesus to be God, we'll just throw this one in for fun. John 7, verses 1 through 10, in verse 8, Jesus says uh, the, the, the disciples are going to be going to a festival, but the Pharisees are on the lookout for Jesus. They're planning on arresting him. Right. It's actually and, Lilith Fair, where they <laughs> or Bonnaroo. I'm not, I'm not clear on that. And Jesus says uh, in uh, John 7, verse 8, that I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. And what he means by my time has not fully come is I'm not ready to be captured by the Pharisees or anything yet. Right. Um, verse 9, after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. So you have Jesus engineering this thing where he's he's lying to his own disciples. Undercover to, Jesus. Yes. Yeah. It's and like then, that undercover boss show <laughs> where the bosses dress up like they're not the bosses. And but, but with Jesus. Like Jesus. You know? <laughs> Might seem like a pretty innocent lie, but that is God lying. Right. I think mm-hmm. that fits the he bill. He is not telling the truth in there. You have a, another uh, clear instance where God is commanding somebody to lies in First Samuel 16, 1 through 5. Uh, Samuel, of course, it wants to anoint a, a new king. Uh, Saul has lost his his right to serve on the fr- on the throne, but Samuel is, of course, scared that if he goes to anoint a new king, he's going to get attacked. And the Lord said to Samuel, "Here's uh, starting in 16 verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel.'" Fill your horn with oil and set out, and I will send you Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you uh, what you shall do, and you shall uh, anoint for me the one whom I name you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So he yeah. is, uh, giving, he's giving uh, Samuel a lie to tell to them uh, mm-hmm. so, that, so that he can – so his real purpose will be concealed. Right. Now, again, the apologist can try to say, well, it's a half lie. I mean, he told them. He, he told, told someone them, else to lie for him. It's right, not God right. lie. Right. And, and he, he told, you know, Samuel could have still made that sacrifice. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, so it wasn't technically a lie. But the clear, it's, it's really clearly semantic. the aim is right, to right, deceive right, yeah. here. Uh, there's, yeah. there's no other the explanation. The ends justify the means. That's, that's what's yeah. going on here. Right. Yeah. So, sorry, God is a liar which should create serious problems for any kind of theology because, again, it brings up questions of God's trustworthiness. Can we trust his revelation? All right, let's finish her off with some polyatheism. Now, these days, as we talked about earlier in the show, women aren't exactly having the greatest time in Egypt. Under the rule of Islam and Islamic rulers, Rights are being stripped from women even as they are forced to cover themselves up. 
Perhaps Egyptian women can find some solace in the tale of one of the greatest goddesses of the ancient world, Isis. Long before Islam, Christianity, or even Alexander, the Egyptians worshipped and dearly loved the goddess of healing, Isis. Isis was the wife and, in many ways, the better half of Osiris. Theirs is a timeless love story. The two fell in love at first sight, no matter that first sight happened to be whilst they were still in their mother's womb. Creepy. Yeah, well, it happens. In fact, the sibling-slash-spouses first made love before they were even born. Uh, Their mother, the sky, Nut, and their father, the Earth, behaved similarly and, as a result, had been forced apart so that um, Isis and Osiris were literally born into a broken home. But that didn't hold them back. Osiris became the first pharaoh of Egypt, or the second, see the polyatheism on Ra for that story, and he and Isis are personally responsible for civilizing humanity. Before they showed up on the scene, people literally could not figure out anything to eat except each other. Egypt's power couple rode into town and said, hey friends, cannibalism just isn't cool. Here, Try grain instead. Isis discovered wheat and grain. Osiris taught them how to farm. And very quickly, humanity went from a barbaric cannibalistic tribe to an agricultural society. Speeding along cultural evolution nice. at a breakneck pace. Right. This this lucky this lucky charm sure tastes a whole lot better than Omar the tent maker, don't you think? <laughs> uh, Isis and Osiris then gave humans laws, created government, and then gave them poetry and art. So these two, in very short order, took people too dumb to know not to eat each other and brought them into a nation of artists and thinkers. The modern Egyptian government would do well to remember the enormous role both a man and a woman played in the formation of their first government, at least mythologically speaking. Isis was not just the woman standing next to Pharaoh Osiris, though. She proved her chops time and again. After they established their society in Egypt, Osiris decided to go off and share this knowledge with other people around the world. And when he did that, Isis was in charge, and she did as well, if not better, than Osiris did. Ancient Egypt can have a female ruler, and yet here in this country... Uh, we're still asking the question, are we ready for a female president? That's kind of pitiful, I have to say. Anyway, Isis and Osiris's fates took a turn for the tragic when their evil brother, Set or Seth, killed Osiris. Um, we'll save that full story for another polyatheism or oh. possibly a previous polyatheism. It's getting hard to keep one. track. I think yeah. so, too. Um, I do believe something about salad shooting. Yeah, that's that's Horus, but oh, uh, it's all that was it was Set. No, no, no. It's all well. It's Horus versus Set. So uh, anyway, um, Set uses a Cinderella-style plot to lure Osiris in, but rather than a shoe, it's a coffin, which then gets oh. tossed into the sea. You know, shoe coffin, basically that's, the same. That is nice. No, it, it is not. 
Um, well, ISIS eventually. Well, let's crawl inside and see how spacious this is. <laughs> By the way, this is some good cedar wood. <laughs> I close the lid. That is, that is almost exactly how it goes, in fact. Um, ISIS eventually tracks down Osiris's corpse in the box, which is inside a tree that had been made into a column and placed inside the palace of a king. Um, Isis then went undercover as a nanny so that she could get near her husband's entombed corpse. Isis was an exceptional nanny and dearly loved children, in part because children helped lead her to her husband's body. As a result, she decided to make the young child in her care immortal by curing him as one would cure a ham, not as one would cure a boo-boo, in a fire each night. It's a gradual process, you see, and don't try this at home. Of course, Isis was still very sad about her dead husband, so one night, as she was working to seal in the baby's succulent juices of immortality, (laughs) her sobs alarmed the queen. When the queen ran in and saw her child seemingly cooking in the fire, she, not surprisingly, Freaked. Grab the baster. This, no, 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 just baste. Just baste. Yeah. It'll be all right. <laughs> uh, this broke the spell and cost the child his immortality. Isis revealed her, her goddesshood, explained what was going on, and the king and queen gladly allowed the beloved goddess to chop open their column and retrieve her husband's body. According to Plutarch, by the way, when Isis saw her husband's co- corpse, she let out such a terrible cry that it killed the child she had been taking care of. Oh, so <laughs> that's not great, but, you know, no one's record is perfect. And then she saw the child and went, ah, again, and it killed a bunch more yeah, people. Yeah, and it just went and on so from on. there. It's like when one person throws off. And it just, you know, it's like, <laughs> or, you know, at the whole room. Yeah. Um, on the way back home with Osiris's corpse, Isis flipped the script on the not-so-true recent news about husbands being able to sleep with their dead wives, and she, in fact, had sex with her dead husband. Which one's the stiff? Yeah. Who knew it had a hidden talent pool? That's really a joke. He was only mostly dead because she turned into a bird and flapped breath back into him. They had sex, and he died again. Because that's, of course, the first thing any zombie wants to do is have sex. That was when the bird-headed sun god Horus was conceived, and of course, we've talked about his story before. Um, After she gave birth to him, she wanted to hide him from the nefarious set, so she put him in a basket and hid him in the reeds along the Nile. Wait a minute. I've heard a story like that before. Sound familiar? A little bit of Moses yeah. mixed in there. I was going to say Sargon of Cad. Well, that, that too. You're absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> I'm proud to say I do not get that reference. Um, more, more Mesopotamian children being... I think Sargon was the first to get put in a basket and, and flown I, down a river, but yeah. I'm, I'm not positive about no, that. No, uh, Horace might have been first. I'm not sure. Your baby in a basket? Um, of course, Set got his hands on Osiris's corpse, tore it to pieces, scattered it throughout Egypt, yada, yada, yada. Isis found everything but the penis, and because it was eaten by fish, of course. Um, but uh, with the help of her stepson Anubis, they fashioned Osiris into the first mummy, Anubis being the god of embalming. Isis was also renowned for her healing abilities throughout the ancient world. Not surprisingly, given his parents were a bird and a corpse, Horus wasn't terribly healthy when he was born, 
So he was nursed to health by Isis's magic milk. He grew up to be one of the most powerful gods in Egypt. So, you know, that's a pretty strong endorsement for breastfeeding. Mm. You can see those statues of Horus breastfeeding uh, Isis, the, like Isis right. lactants. More, oh, more so on indecent. that in a moment. So indecent. Yeah. So you wouldn't be seeing them in Egypt uh, for much longer from the sound of it. Um, Isis was considered so powerful a goddess that the Romans embraced her wholeheartedly. They loved her. Of course, the Romans picked up any god that uh, some <laughs> other culture Ooh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> now, Ovid himself reportedly prayed to Isis as his wife lay dying from a botched abortion, which opens up a door to a whole range of other discussions to be had. And Galen, doctor, not doctor, professor, copied many of Isis's notes to create drugs to cure various ailments. When you're working with guys that have been chopped up in the gladiator ring, it's, you know, there's, there's a basement. There's only so, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well try something mythological. Um, and, of course, we must point out that Isis's iconography and healing powers were so respected by the Romans that when Christianity took hold, they borrowed much of her mojo and lent it to Mary. That way you can mm. see the statue of, um, of uh, there's statues of Mary where the, th the virgin and child, where and the virgin and child mm -hmm. that looks just like the iconography for Isis. Right. Exactly right. Because Emperor uh, Theodosius I banned the worship of Isis. So rather than worshiping Isis, they just changed it into right. Mary, including the image of her nursing Horus, which became the the virgin and baby, and her um, color of blue, which is often attached to the Madonna. Or if you look that at that, all the, comes um, from Isis. There's pictures of like the Pharaoh that sits on the throne of Isis. If you look at the portal of some of the cathedrals in France, you see the world emperor Jesus sitting mm -hmm. in the lap of Mary. Exactly. Um, so truthfully, there's more. Isis in classic depictions and conceptions of Mary than there is of the figure who actually appears in the Gospels. Mm. Not a whole lot on her in the it, Gospels. No, there really right, isn't, right. which is why, I mean, it, and and um, Catholics will pray to her for healing and other things, and that all comes from Isis. Um, modern Catholicism still echoes with the spirit of the goddess Isis. How hard can it be to bring a little bit of Isis back to modern Egypt. Perhaps Isis could heal the long-suffering rights of women in her home country. So there you have it. Isis, ruler, goddess, and healer, and one more goddess, very much worth honoring and not believing in. And we'll wrap it up there for this week, but... For those of you sad for the end of the show, there is still a way for the Reasonable Doubts experience to continue on for you. Reasonable Doubts experience. The Reasonable Doubts experience. I like that. Are we sponsoring a cruise? Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, are you experiencing? Um, you can, of course, email us, doubtcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Doubtcast. You can fan us on Facebook because we're awfully warm and it feels nice to get a little breeze. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and now, thanks to our very own Mr. Justin Schieber, <laughs> you can find us on YouTube. What's the address on YouTube? Uh, it's Doubtcast. YouTube.com so, slash Doubtcast. Yep. We've got um, 
a few episodes on there, and more will be coming up in the next few weeks. So, or a few counterapologetic segments. Yeah. And then, uh, so if anybody has any recommendations of what of what uh, they would like on there, little little uh, audio clips to share with friends and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. Then, because uh, write us, and, and I'll I'll try to get those out. Yeah. I'd like the episode to be paired with pictures of puppies and kittens. Well, we could do that too. Um, but the the really nice thing about this, and and this just goes to show you how poor. Jeremy, Luke, and I are at the social networking stuff because this is such a obvious and brilliant idea that we should have done it four years ago. Um, but it's a great way for people who don't listen to podcasts right. um, for you to get them segments from the show. Mm-hmm. You know, you post it on your Facebook rather than having a hour plus long episode of the show. You can go. Right. Here's an interesting. This is segment. just the one I wanted you to hear. You know, and, right, and yeah, right. send it to them. Directly. Exactly. So of course. If you have suggestions for stuff that you would like to to have posted, let us know, and Justin will do that because he's the only one who knows how to make videos. Um, And I also want to say to those of our listeners out there who are creative types, if you want to make your own videos and perhaps some animations – because that would be awesome. Like polyatheism would be really cool to see animated. Get some uh, creative people doing that. Um, please do so. Let us know about it. And if we like it, if it's good, then we'll post it. And yes. uh, Two of us do work for an art college. So I will warn you, we have standards when it comes, <laughs> yes, to, we do. When it comes to internet tackiness. That Not is, just uh, anything's going to fly. But you're, that is, this is creative commons. So, so yeah, we, exactly. we love people resourcing our, our stuff. That's, that's totally yep. cool. It's a, it's a great way for... We just might not promote it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's good and we like yeah. it, um, then we will we can put it on our YouTube channel. We can put it out there for all of our listeners. So please, 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 if you've been you know itching to do an animation of <laughs> Luke making necrophilia jokes, uh, you are... That's not me today. <laughs> that's partly you. Um, so anyway, um, uh, so get started on that. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to all of you, our dear listeners, for your support for the show, helping spread the word, which is now easier than ever. Um, and uh, thanks for listening, because frankly, if you didn't, um, why would we do this? Speaking out into nothingness for no one's sake but our own. We'd basically be praying. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for supporting the show. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.